0: You are now listening to the February 23rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Attributes of God, Walking Our Talk, and Grace Upon Grace. First, let's begin with the Attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature, by discovering His attributes. everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, your host for our program series, The Attributes of God. Today we are going to study another attribute of God, an attribute that we as humans have a very hard time becoming proficient at, and that is patience. We are all very familiar with this word, but let's see how dictionary.com defines patience. They define it as a behavior of putting up with provocation, annoyance, misfortune, or pain without complaint, loss of temper, irritation, or the like. I believe that of all the attributes that God shares with us, patience is the most difficult one to become good at. Patience, slow to anger, and long-suffering generally mean the same thing. But where patience and slow to anger are used in the New American Standard Version, long-suffering is used in the New King James Version. Patience is used 21 times in the New American Standard Version. In the Old Testament, it is used to describe the attribute of God, such as in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13, where Isaiah writes, Then he, Isaiah, said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of God as well? God Himself uses the word slow to anger in Exodus chapter 34. There we find Moses up on Mount Sinai, having carved the second stone tablets for God to write on again. And in verse 5 and 6, Moses writes The Lord descended in the cloud. And stood there with him, Moses, as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Here, using the definition of patience, it could fit where slow to anger is. In the New Testament, Jesus used the illustration of the patience of God in the parable of the prodigal son. Paul wrote about the patience of God in the books of Romans and Colossians, and in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he writes, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to Save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for the reason I have found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. God is righteous and holy, and he will judge all people. However, God waits patiently for his people to repent and come back to him. Patience is also one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. These fruits are the characteristics we need to practice in order to be more like Christ— and patience is one of them. Paul, James, and Peter wrote about the importance of being patient with ourselves and with others. In 1 Peter 2, verse 20, Peter writes, For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. This can include persecution, doing or saying what is right, and suffering the consequences. Maybe you or someone you know has stood up for their faith and has been treated harshly, or worse, and instead of being angry, they patiently endure. In closing, I would like to leave you with the words from the author of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. I ask that you hold tight to the promises of God with faith and patience, while also practicing the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit until God returns and calls us home. God bless you all. Goodbye.
1: Dark Calvary, so I'll cherish the old rugged crawl till my trophies at last I lay down. and exchange it someday for a crown. Please at last I let...
0: Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God
2: and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we had a great conversation on distraction, and we talked about things that we're distracted from and what we're distracted by. And on today's podcast, we're going to discuss the steps within a relationship cycle. And Ed is going to give us the steps to that cycle. And then Alan and Polly are going to give us 42 years worth of marriage advice in how this cycle works. All this material that we're discussing today comes from a book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, are authors of this book. And the podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. You know, as we talk about trust and we look at relationships, you you have to obviously have a relationship to trust and, and just the very idea of God himself being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a relationship there, Ed. You know, it's a perfect relationship. And when you look at the life of Jesus and the way that he had relationships, there was basically what you guys have done, you've looked at that relationship, and you've got a relationship cycle in your book. Exactly. Yes. And I'd just like to kind
3: of go through it step by step, and then we're going to listen to a conversation with Alan and Polly as they discuss through these things. So this is the roadmap that they'll be taking so that you all know where we're going. And that first step is attraction. That's where you first meet that person. I think uh, like Adam and Eve first in the garden, you know, woman, she looked good, good to me. You know, uh, all those, wow, you know, that attraction factor. So everything starts unattracted. You see somebody, you see something, you're attracted to it. It kind of pulls you in. It may be visual, it may be audio, but it's usually both of those. But it pulls you in. That's that attraction thing. And you first meet them and everything's going great and so forth and then there's a season of that and then the next step that any relationship goes through is into the openness cycle that's when boy you're flowing on the same page and wow everything's working and and boy this person's really good and you're telling your friends this is i've never met anybody like this you know and so forth and or i've never been to a church like this or i've never been oh i started working at this place and oh, it's the best business ever, you know, and you're just, you're attracted to it. And then that open, that great openness period that we all have. And then when you're together with something for a long period of time, then comes the next stage. So we've moved from attraction to openness to now exposure. Now you've been with them for a while. You've been with that business for a while. You've been with that church for a while. But all of a sudden you're beginning to see a few uh, flaws, and you're beginning to see some things that you don't agree with. You didn't know that they were there. And so that exposure, and God allows us to go through that exposure stage because he wants you to see the whole package, just not what you want to see. So much of what we're seeing today on in the media and so forth is all built on attraction and openness, but it never gets around to the end. So now you have a time where the exposure and exposure, conflict will come in at that, in that season. There'll always be some, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. Okay. So there'll be something you disagree with and you start seeing and you go, whoa, I didn't know that was there. And then you come in, exposure leads to conflict. So here you are, you start an attraction and now you're in a conflict situation and conflict comes. And all of a sudden you have two choices here with a conflict. You can either separate or you can re- revolve around this thing to mature love. And that's the goal. So separation could be spiritual, mental, emotional, social, sexual, physical, financial, legal. But the problem is it could lead to permanent separation. you leaving that church. you leaving that business. Or divorce. You know, love is grand. Divorce is a 100 grand. You don't want to go there. <laughs> and uh, so forth. And then at that point, you have a choice. So you can separate or you can do it God's way and that is repentance. Now, I'm not talking about some sick relationship, for example, women where you're getting beaten or things like that. I'm talking about something that's manageable and reasonable, okay? But you can go to the next step. That's where you repent, and that's where you take responsibility for your part in it. Maybe the other person played more of a part, but you take responsibility for your part. So repentance, and that leads to reconciliation, all right? And then you forgive, and then you start working together. You see, you can forgive some. It's one thing to forgive somebody. It's another thing to trust somebody. So it's the forgiveness is the where you take response. Reconciliation where you take you forgive, and then that can lead after reconciliation comes oneness. Then you start to get back together again. And after you come through that cycle, then you hit mature love, and you've moved from attraction to mature love. How did that happen through conflict? You learned how to work out the relationship, and come back together again. So listen as Alan Polly talk about this whole cycle.
4: So again, we've mentioned this, but we wanted to put this in context and give the whole thing. It starts with there's an attraction. Now, this can be done with a male-female relationship. It can be done in business in terms of there's an attraction because Wow, you do something, you do marketing really well, I have the nuts and bolts of this business down, and so we're attracted to one another. And so there's something that causes a spark between us, which is good, and we sort of, you know, we open ourselves to one another. So I want you to see my good side, you want me to see your good side because we're on our best behavior, and we just wanna show, you know, here's all the goods I have, and, and that's really good stuff. And um, the thing about openness is at some point, we need uh, to get a commitment of, you know, where's this thing going? Where's this relationship going? And openness, as you trust that person, all of a sudden you start seeing, oh, there's a little crack over there. Oh, they're not quite what they said they were over here. And pretty soon you're getting exposed and you find out, oh, there's some faults here. And even though there's this good stuff on one hand, I got this crack over here, and we start wondering, you know, is this gonna be a good fit or not? And that exposure then leads to what we all, I've just never had anybody come into my counseling office and say, Alan, what I'd really like is a good dose of conflict and pain in my relationship. Everyone's coming in so we can get this relationship right. So the exposure leads to conflict. And that conflict, I don't know about anybody in the audience, but it always feels bad to me. It never feels good. I don't like to be separated from my wife. I didn't mean to say that thing, or maybe I did mean to say that thing because I was tired and hungry and, and just upset, and my flesh got in the way. And so I have that conflict with that person, and that's going to cause
2: separation. Are, is that exposure, is that the same thing as time, spending time with that person? Yeah,
4: exposure, time, as well as experiences. Okay. In other words, I start seeing you. One of the things I say to premaritals, counseling, I say to these people, see each other in different places. See him under pressure. See him with his family. You know, A woman goes home to see the man's family and goes, oh, my gosh, I didn't know they did that, you know. And so there's exposure, but and you have to decide in that relationship when there's that exposure, can I accept that? Am I willing to go beyond that if you're going to keep a relationship? So how about conflict, Paul. We've never had any of that in our relationship. (laughs) Well,
5: I just think about in, in terms of the exposure idea that, When you're put in a pressured situation, the different things- Pop out. Pop out, (laughs) yeah. And we're driving in traffic, and you honk your horn at somebody, or you you say a nasty thing under your breath, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was there. Or... He was
2: inviting them to church, probably. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I'm not saying Alan does any of these
4: things. Well, I remember a guy that really got me upset. We're waiting in line, and he just puts on his brakes. And, I mean, I just I couldn't believe it, it was so quick. And uh, and then he gets, you know, he's giving me the right finger of fellowship, and and then he gets out, and I get out. I mean, and I'm thinking... what what are you doing? You might get shot. You know, in this day and age, you can't let your emotions have their fling. And that exposure, that conflict can get pretty heated pretty quick.
5: Yeah. So I think you're Prince Charming because you always talk like a gentleman and you're I want to open your door for you, you know, I'm going to take care of you. And then you get upset with me and walk away without opening my door. Or you say something nasty and I see things that I didn't think I would see or didn't want to see, hope weren't there, and then that leads to conflict. And the conflict ultimately will lead to separation. And how do we deal with conflict? Different people deal with their conflict in different ways. Some people just rush headlong into conflict, and other people hide from it. And in our families, Alan's family are confronters. If they have a beef with with somebody else in the family, they just come right out and talk about it. Well, blah, blah, blah. I didn't like that. I didn't think you should have done that. And and then they, so they'll argue with one another for an hour and then kiss everybody good night and go to bed. <laughs>
4: and in my Isn't that opinion, how you do it?
5: <laughs> we just sort of went to our corners. You know, we didn't-
4: You didn't spar?
5: Not as a whole family. Maybe as individuals, maybe I would have an argument with my sister- but it wasn't one of those things where the whole family would sit around the table and have some big, I don't think you should have done this kind of an argument with one another and hash something out.
4: But you did throw zingers.
5: Oh yeah. The sarcastic yeah. zingers <laughs> yeah.
4: was the conflict uh, brewing there?
5: Yeah, but the kind of the separation that takes place then, especially between couples, can be spiritual. Where you know, I'm not going to pray with you anymore. I, you know I don't think you're being a very godly example to me. and so I, you know, I withdraw. I start muttering to God about you. Instead of praying blessing, I'm cursing. Yeah. I ha- There's a mental separation where I'm not wanting to even think good thoughts toward you. There's an emotional separation where I withdraw emotionally. I'm the, I don't want to connect. I want to protect myself from you. There's a there can be a physical separation. I'm going to go to the a different room I, or
4: the other side I of the could, bed.
5: Yeah, I love I, when I I'm, I'm clinging
4: you. to the other side <laughs> of the bed and you start snoring and you're asleep. You know. I just,
6: yeah.
5: Well, and then of course, then there's a, a sexual separation too that will take place. Like I don't touch me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And then ultimately, if things get really extreme, it will lead to moving out of the house. and
4: Financially, just you take your stuff, I'll take mine. Some of the saddest things I've seen, noticed with relationship, is when it just comes down to numbers. And it just comes down. I mean, watching in court as basically they're listing all their stuff and how they're going to divide it up. And and the pain that goes on with that physical, financial, and eventually legal separation and sometimes permanent separation and ultimately in that relationship, divorce, which is the death of a relationship. And that can also happen in a company or with a boss that you know, bonded with some of the funds uh, without me knowing, and then I don't trust you anymore. I push you away. I try and find a way not to deal with you anymore.
5: But one of the things that I find so hopeful in the Lord is that there can be a rebuilding of a relationship, that it doesn't have to end there. And of course, we've never gone to the point of a legal separation or one of us moving out, but we do go through that emotional withdrawal, that separating emotionally and even physically pulling away. But there's a rebuilding of trust. Because we have our trust in the Lord, that we have made a commitment to each other till death do us part, we go back to the Lord and say, Lord, how can we rebuild this? What do we need to do to regain our oneness? And the Lord will lead us to a place of repentance. Well,
4: in the book, it it has repentance. But first, I have to confess. I have to agree with God that I blew it in this relationship. And I need to let go of my pride, which usually is what's keeping me from connecting again. And so that's the first step is the recognition that I'm playing God right now. And then I need to repent or turn around from that behavior as well as the heart. I think we miss the heart. We can grit our teeth and say, okay, we're, we're, I forgive you. you know, And somehow that doesn't work with you. <laughs> you want a little bit more than that. And then the desire is to reconcile. Be able to say, okay, you did hurt me. I hurt you, I forgive you, I will let go of that so that we can be restored into that oneness which is representative of the Godhead. We've talked about this, where you know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have never had a conflict that totally blew them out of the water. Matter of fact, I don't think they've ever had a conflict. <laughs> and so oneness, both in a marriage relationship, oneness even in just our everyday relationship Not only with those who are believers, but uh, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and in favor with man. So sometimes even your enemies will be blessed and will look on you with favor when you're willing to do it God's way and work through this cycle. And this cycle may happen two or three times a day. It's not like you do it once and say, okay, well, 20 years ago we went through that relationship cycle, and we don't have to go through it again.
5: Well, part of that reconciliation that has to take place involves repairing the damage that was done by words that you said or things that you did and and making a determination to change a pattern of behavior that's become destructive in the relationship. And I think that that's part of restoring trust in the other person. If you don't repair the damage, then all you're doing by your attempts at reconciliation is mouthing a a lot of empty words. And some people will say, I'm sorry, now you have to forgive me, and we're done with this, and let's move on. And there's a little more to it than that. There has to be a heart change that There has to be a recognition that something that I did, something that I said hurt you, and I would like to do what I can to make it better and to to repair the damage and to not do that again.
4: Our little cycle here, we get to the point of reconciling. What helps you to feel restored? Because I know this, in our relationship, this... Becomes a tough thing because sometimes I, and maybe you out there, as you reconcile with somebody, they say, I don't think you really forgive me. I don't really think you're apologizing the right way. And, um, you know, how do you read the heart? How do we get to the point where it's done and we can go back through the cycle again?
5: I think for me, part of that mature love process has been to learn not to try to force you into an apology or into change. This is where trust comes in to the picture for me is to trust the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to actually get to your heart so that you're not mouthing words of apology that you're not really ready to say. And I've seen that happen where guys will say, I'm sorry. All right, I said it. I'm sorry. And, you know, that really- warms your heart?
4: heart. (laughs) That's
6: good news.
4: (laughs) But I think what happens with a guy is when we have a problem, we want to solve it. We want to get through it. So you're telling me I've offended you. I really want to say, I am sorry. Let's move on. But we can't move on until both parties in their heart have been able to say, I give up my pride. I give up the hurt that I'm holding on to and let go.
5: Well, and one of the things that I've seen happen is that if I will just let it go and say, Lord, I'm just going to trust you to speak to Alan, is that eventually, maybe not right away, but eventually you'll come to me and say, I am sorry, I realize I hurt you by what I said, or I spoke too harshly, and I was wrong, please forgive me. And that is so much better. It's so much more satisfying and gratifying to me as your wife to wait for the Lord to speak to your heart and wait for you to come back with a genuine heart change rather than just saying the words.
4: So it's a process. It takes time. Uh, We've been at it 43 years. We teach it. We try and live it. And we still have issues that we have to work through. And sometimes it doesn't work totally right the first time. And so you might have to take a time or two to work that out. But our goal would be mature love the way God designed us to be one where our hearts are knit together and we trust one another.
2: Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delph at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book, along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session a one-on-one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week.
0: to unity in Christ. The English Hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you, so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcast on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Milter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Ordinary Heroes, Part 1. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill.
7: Well, we live in an interesting time in world history. And one of the main reasons for this is how fast technologies and discoveries are occurring. I mean, even in the 20th century, the previous century, amazing things happened. I have flown a couple times this summer, and it blows me away that mankind has created jumbo jets that can fly at 42,000 feet at 600 miles an hour all over the world. Amazing. You can literally wake up in Phoenix and go to sleep in Europe. Is that incredible? I mean, previous generations could only explore the idea, think about the idea of flying, and yet we have perfected it, that we can now go across the world in a day's time. It is amazing that we have buildings so tall that they actually reach over a half mile into the sky. You can look down on the clouds instead of up at them. Amazing. The tallest building in the world, by the way, is 2,716 feet tall. That's pretty tall. Let me put that into perspective for you. The tallest pyramid was only about 480 feet tall. Amazing. Can you imagine engineers in previous generations? They would have marveled at what we are capable of. And that was last century. That was the 20th century. We are now in the 21st century. The technologies that are happening in this century are going to probably dwarf what we've done in the previous. It amazes me that doctors can replace a person's heart or liver or kidneys and send them home as though nothing ever really happened. Truly amazing. The accomplishments of mankind are amazing. They are stunning. These are just the accomplishments of mankind. It is amazing what individuals can do. But here's what's critical to our sermon series, and that is this. The things that impress mankind are rarely, if ever, the things that impress God. This is foundational to what we are going to talk about. The things that impress mankind and mankind can do some impressive things. The things that, it impress, that can impress mankind rarely, if ever, are the things that impress God. Folks, as impressive as it is that we have figured out how to build massive airplanes and to build skyscrapers so tall that you can look down on the clouds instead of up at them or to replace a human heart or human liver, these are all impressive by worldly standards. But these things do not necessarily impress God. So the question this morning is what impresses God? What pleases Him? It is crucial that we know the answer to this question. It is crucial that we know the answer to this question because it will define how we live our lives. Now I said we're gonna be in Hebrews 11 mostly. This morning we are gonna be in Hebrews chapter 11 but we're gonna start in a different passage. This morning I wanna look at a passage where something happened that left Jesus amazed. It left him marveling. It impressed him. And the question is, what is it that so impressed Jesus? Because if we can find out what impressed Jesus and pleased him, then we can know what pleases God. So it is on that note, church, it is my privilege this morning to present to you the word of God. Hear the word of the living God, which is sharper than any double-edged sword, right? Hebrews 4.12. Penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart of the heart. Here is the word of God. Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 5, when he, that is Jesus, entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. The passage goes on to say this, for I too am a man under authority. "...with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it." Now listen, folks. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He was amazed. He was impressed. "...and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such... And say that word with me. Faith. With no one in Israel have found such faith." And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Amen. Church, I present to you the word of God this morning. So what impressed Jesus? What amazed him? What did he marvel at? It was the centurion's display of faith. That is what caused Jesus to marvel. This ordinary man acting with heroic faith left Jesus marveling. Listen, this is very important. Most people in the world, including, I bet you, everyone in this room, including myself, have resigned ourselves to leading ordinary lives. What do I mean by that? Meaning you will probably never do anything truly heroic in this lifetime by worldly standards. Your name will never be on the nightly news, right? You may, most people in this room will never get to do, even be presented with the opportunity to do anything heroic by worldly standards in this lifetime right? You'll probably never thwart a bank robbery. You'll probably never do CPR and bring back someone back to life, someone important back to life. I mean, some of you might have done that, but most of us, we don't get to do those things. Those opportunities don't even present themselves to us. And so most people have resigned themselves to going, well, I'm going to live an ordinary life. I'll live and I'll die. Nobody will really know my name. A few people will. And when I die, I'll pass on. But listen, folks, although most people have resigned themselves to leading ordinary lives, it does not have to be that way for those of us who are believers. The people in the Bible who we would designate as heroes all had one thing in common. And you can guess what that one thing was. What was it? It was faith. I know some of you don't have the faith to say faith because you think you're going to be wrong, but you're right, right? (laughs) It is faith. They were ordinary people who stepped out in faith, a faith that was pleasing to God. It changed their circumstances, and in many cases, it changed the world. Faith, folks, is so foundational to pleasing God that Hebrews chapter 11 says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, I'm going to give you guys a homework assignment this week. You know what it is? I want you to read Hebrews chapter 11 once, maybe twice, possibly three times. Literally, it'll take you about a minute and a half to read it once. So, read it a few times. Get familiar with it because you are going to know this chapter in the Bible backwards and forward by the time that we are done. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Impossible means not having the ability. It doesn't matter what amazing things a person does in this lifetime. They might thwart a bank robbery. They might raise someone from the dead in performing CPR. They might jump off a skyscraper and sail to the earth with a parachute. They might build a building that reaches the sky. They might replace a heart or a liver, but without faith, none of that is pleasing to God. And that is what sets you and me apart from the rest of the world, because guess what you and I have that the rest of the world doesn't have? Faith. We have faith. God has implanted faith in our hearts. And it is that faith that allows us to please God. As believers, we have the ability to step out in faith and honor God, serve God, follow God, obey God each and every day. By the way, you may never be presented an opportunity to do anything heroic by worldly standards in your entire lifetime. You may never be presented with the opportunity to do anything heroic by worldly standards. Again, you may never thwart a bank robbery, perform CPR or do anything significant in that manner. Your name might never be on the nightly news, but I can tell you this, you will be presented daily with opportunities to walk in faith and please God daily. What is interesting, this is what's interesting. Now I need you guys to hang with me through this cause I'm gonna get a little philosophical, but it's going, listen to carefully to what I say. It is interesting that is the people of this world, when they think of you and I having faith, they think of us as having blind faith. They think of us as having blind faith. Oh, you Christians, you just live by blind faith in a God you can't see. You, you know, that's all you have. But listen to me, biblical faith, and this is terribly important because it's in Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. Biblical faith is not blind faith. It is not. And I'm going to prove it to you. Biblical faith is faith that has assurance and conviction behind it. So again, church, Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, get familiar with it, because we're gonna be in this chapter. Now faith is the, and say it with me, assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Again, true biblical faith has assurance and conviction behind it. As Christians, we do not live in a world where God probably exists. We live in a world where we know he exists. And I'm gonna prove it to you in just a second. We have assurance and conviction that God exists. We base our lives on that assurance and conviction. We live our lives based upon that assurance and conviction. We don't live in a world where God probably created everything. We live in a world where we know God created everything. As a matter of fact, look at the next couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, let's look at verse one, but two and three also. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, why is this important? As Christians, we don't have to speculate where time, space, and matter came from. We know that God spoke all of these things into existence by his own power and authority. The non-believer cannot account at least rationally, for time, space, and matter. Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? You're familiar with this verse. What does this one verse say? It says this, in the beginning, time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter, In the very first verse of the Bible, you and I can account for time, space, and matter. The unbeliever cannot, at least rationally. And I'm going to prove that again in a second. Listen, even unbelieving scientists and philosophers agree that the universe had to have a beginning. You understand that universe had to have a beginning. You cannot have an infinite amount of time before this moment. If you had an infinite amount of time before this moment and I set you in a spaceship back in time and told you to call me when you get to the beginning, when would you call me? Never. When would you get halfway there? Never. When would you be a third of the way there? Never. As a matter of fact, no matter how far you went back in time, you would still have an infinite amount of time yet to go. It's called transcending an actual infinite. You cannot transcend or go past an actual infinite because it has no end. You can't traverse it. You can't go past it. So there had to be a beginning in which time, space, and matter came into existence. You and I can account for it. The unbeliever can't. And yet, it is the unbeliever who's going to tell you you're the one living by blind faith. Go figure. You're the ones living by blind faith. Listen, it is at this point that the unbelieving scientist or philosopher or the atheist crosses the line into absurdity. And if you don't believe in God and that God created everything, I don't mean that as an insult. I mean it as the truth. For the unbelieving scientist, philosopher, or atheist, they will have to posit that the universe just popped into existence by itself. Time, space, and matter just suddenly appeared from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. Huh, go figure. Folks, if you want to talk about somebody living by blind faith, it is not us. It is them. We are people whose faith has assurance and conviction behind it. Amen? That is why the biblical definition says it is that biblical faith has assurance and conviction. We don't live in a world where God probably exists. We know he exists. There had to be a beginning. And you're either going to say it happened by nothing Buy nothing, for nothing, for no reason, or you're going to say God created, I can account, you can account for where time, space, and matter came from. As a matter of fact, we can account for it in the very first verse of the Bible. Let me take it a step further. Let's take this a step further. Hang with me, this is very important. We know the God of the Bible exists because of the impossibility of the contrary. The impossibility of the contrary. Let me prove this. For example, if the God of the Bible doesn't exist, then human beings are nothing more than blobs of chemicals hurtling through space. The universe just popped into existence and you and I are just chemicals. We are stardust. We are matter in motion. That is all we are. We're chemicals that act in response to the environment. That's all it is. Folks, in the same way, if God does not exist, then human beings are nothing more than fizzing chemical reactions. We are just stardust. We are just matter in motion. But the fact is, when you reason or ascribe value to your thoughts, or have morals, you are proving that the God of the universe exists. And this is the irony, is the atheist, or the unbeliever, will deny God exists while using reason and logic to try to prove that point. Do you see that? They are borrowing from our worldview. I can make sense of reason and logic. I know why our thoughts have values, because we were created in God's image. And yet you're going to use reason and logic to argue against my position. Go figure. It has been said that the unbeliever is like a small child that has to crawl into the lap of his father to slap the father in the face. He has to sit first on the father's lap to do that. Listen, folks, if God doesn't exist, there is no such thing as reason. There is no such thing as logic. The very fact that there is reason, that there is logic, that there is morals is because God exists. I can account for that. The atheist cannot. You can account for that. The atheist cannot. It is not you who are living by blind faith. It is the atheist. As one theologian said, we don't reason our way to God's existence. We reason because of God's existence. The very fact that you are reasoning right now, that you have thoughts, that you ascribe value to your thoughts, proves that you believe in God. You may deny his existence, the non-believer will, but you are not living your life as though he exists. Because if you truly thought that you were just stardust, matter in motion, you would not be sitting here arguing with me. Because there are no thoughts, there is no logic, there is no value in anything we do. We are just chemicals reacting in response to environmental factors. And again, the irony is that on the one hand the non-believer will say God it doesn't exist while using things like reason and logic to reach that conclusion. See non-believers have to borrow from our worldview to argue against our worldview. They live, everyone lives, everyone lives as though God exists. I guarantee it. Even the staunchest atheist. They wake up and they say certain things are right and wrong. They wake up and say, my thoughts have value. They wake up and say, let's logically figure this out. That's because you're acting, you're living in a world like where you live like God exists, even though you deny his existence. And this brings up a very important point. Everyone knows that God exists. Everyone does. Romans chapter one, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. Now this is key. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The truth. For what can be known about God, say it with me, is plain to them. It is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been, say it with me, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that men are without excuse, so that they are without excuse. All people know that God exists and they live their life like God exists even if they deny him. One theologian put it this way, he said, denying God exists is like trying to hold a beach ball under water. Now, we've all done this, right? Most of us have done this. Now, most of the time when you try to hold a beach ball under water, you just roll, you know, how you flip over and you roll over and you face plant and you get water up your nose and it's horrible. But if you're good and you press it down, you can, you know, balance like this and hold it underwater for a few seconds. What inevitably happens? That beach ball pops right to the surface. It pops right to the surface. You literally have to hold it down and suppress it. Otherwise, it shoots to the top. See, folks, those of us who live by faith have simply stopped trying to suppress the truth that God exists and that he created all things. It is plain and obvious that God exists. That is why the biblical definition in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, uses the word assurance and conviction. You and I have assurance and conviction. It is not a blind faith. We can account for time, space, and matter. We can account for logic and reason. We can account for why the world is evil and how God and how that's going to be fixed. We can say that somebody like Hitler is going to get justice. The atheist cannot. The unbeliever cannot. And yet they're going to accuse you of living by blind faith. Folks, you are not living by blind faith. Not at all. It is they who are living by blind faith. Your faith has assurance. You have conviction. You know God exists. You know he created everything because of the absolute impossibility of the contrary. It is absurd to not say that God exists. And yet they're going to tell you you're the absurd ones. You're the crazy ones for believing that God exists. Go figure. No, they are simply suppressing the truth. And they are borrowing from our worldview to argue against our worldview. They are using reason and logic and all of these things to argue against us. And they don't even realize it. They are like a child trying to hold a beach ball under the water. No matter how hard they try, that beach ball is coming up. Now back to my main point. Ordinary people like you can act with heroic faith. Ordinary people are capable of extraordinary faith. The centurion came to Jesus and asked him to heal his servant. This centurion, he was a soldier, he was a gentile. He was supposed to be a man of war, not a man of faith. And yet it was he who stepped forward and left Jesus marveling. Do you want to know what pleases God? Do you want to know what God is impressed with? It is when people step forward with faith, not a blind faith, conviction and assurance that God is who he says he is and does what he has claimed to do, creating the whole universe. It is people who live their life with assurance and conviction every day and in every way. And folks, this is a powerful reminder. If you ever need reminding that ordinary people can do it, you can do it. I don't know how the centurion knew that Jesus had that type of authority. He must have heard reports. And he certainly knew it from his own career, right? He knew how authority worked. And he knew Jesus had it. And so he says, Jesus, I am not even worthy. Just speak the word. And Jesus goes, what? Where did you come from? And where did you get such faith? It makes me wonder, am I someone who has that type of faith in Christ, in Christ's authority? Do I believe that Jesus has that type of authority in my life? You know what? I'm a pastor of a church. I've been a Christian a long time. I don't. I often don't live with assurance and conviction. I live in fear. One of the greatest temptations for us in this lifetime is that we are going to be people of fear and not faith. By the way, the authority of Jesus wasn't just displayed in the fact that Jesus said this servant should be healed. It was displayed all throughout the gospels. Let me give you a really good example. Mark chapter four, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the disciples are on the Sea of Galilee. In 2007, I had the privilege of going to Israel with a group from our church. We went there, we went out onto the Sea of Galilee and guess what happened? A windstorm arose, kid you not. And it was kind of a bummer when it happened because we were freezing and the wind was blowing and the waves were choppy and it's like, why is this happening? Now I know why it happened so that I could stand here today and tell you I know what this is like. Maybe not quite like that, because I was in a modern boat that was nice and I could go inside, but they couldn't, right? A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern and it says this, and Mark always adds these little details, asleep on a cushion. You wonder why he put that there, Isn't isn't that interesting? Asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was, what does it say? There was great calm. There wasn't just calm. It was great calm. Have you ever walked out in a morning and it's incredibly calm and quiet? It's more peaceful and quiet and silent than usual. It's like, you can almost hear the pine tree needle fall to the ground and hit the ground. It's that quiet. It's that peaceful. That's what this is. The disciples are stunned. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no, say it with me, faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? I love what verse 41 says. Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? The disciples are just beginning to learn the extent of Jesus's authority and they are left stunned, they are marveling, they are amazed. Who is this guy that has this type of authority? You'll remember that when Jesus spoke, he spoke to the people as one who had what? Authority. He did this time and again. Mark chapter one, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching and they were astonished. They were stunned at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. Folks, Jesus constantly left people astonished when he displayed his authority. Now listen to this. Yet it was Jesus who stood astonished, who stood amazed at what? The faith of the centurion. You wanna know what impresses God? You wanna know what pleases God? It's faith. And folks, this is the bottom line. If you wanna do something heroic in this lifetime, step out in faith. You may never get the opportunity by worldly standards to do anything heroic in this lifetime. You may never thwart a bank robbery. You may never perform CPR and bring somebody back from the dead or do any other great things by worldly standards, but no one understands this. You will have endless opportunities every day, even before the sun goes down today, to walk in faith before your God, a faith that pleases Him, and that is heroic oftentimes to Him. And when the world tells you you're living by blind faith, go, no, I'm living with assurance and conviction. I don't live in a world where God probably exists. I know He exists, and I know He created everything, and you do too. You're just suppressing it. And the irony is, is that you're living your life like He exists, even though you don't even though you sit there and deny that he exists. Folks, step out in faith, walk in faith, put your faith into action and trust God for what others think is impossible. You do not have to be rich, powerful, or great by worldly standards to walk in heroic faith. You do believe God is the God of the impossible, right? I know you do. The Bible says it time and again, right? With all things God, with God, all things are possible. There's nothing he can't do. The question is, will we live our lives as though that verse is true? Folks, in the Bible, all the great men and women were ordinary men and women. The only difference is that they were men and women who put their faith into action. They lived like they had assurance and conviction. They trusted God when others would not. And folks, it is time for us to be a people, a generation of believers who live with utter assurance and absolute conviction. If the world knows you as anything, let them know you as somebody that lives with assurance and conviction about what you believe. And what you believe, folks, is true because of the impossibility of the contrary. It is absurd to take any other position. You are not the ones living by blind faith. You are the ones that have every right to be assured and to have conviction about what you believe. Again. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So let me ask you this morning, do the people in your life know you as somebody who lives with assurance and conviction? It's a sobering question. Do the people who know me best go, Bill as somebody that lives with assurance and conviction about the God he follows Bill doesn't live in a world where he hopes God exists and maybe God created everything. No, Bill lives in a world where he knows God exists and he knows God created everything. There's a big difference there, folks. There's a big difference. But what about you? In this sermon series, folks, we are going to look at some really powerful ways in which ordinary people lived with heroic faith. And I hope and I trust that your faith is going to be encouraged in this series. I'm going to hit hard because the Bible hits hard. We go ordinary hero. Sounds like a fun topic. It's going to be fun, but I'm going to warn you right now, brace yourselves, strap yourselves in because it is going to be a powerful sermon series. We're going to start. We'll continue next week and we're going to jump right in with a man by the name of Abel and his brother Cain and we're going to look at a man by the name of Enoch. So I trust that you will be inspired. But here's the great news. This is the great news. and I'm going to end with this. Folks, you will never lack opportunities to display heroic faith. To the lord your god he will give you opportunity after opportunity in this lifetime even before the sun goes down today the rest of the world only dreams about doing something heroic and they're dreaming about doing something heroic by worldly standards so that their name can be on the nightly news folks let that go you live with heroic faith knowing that it pleases the lord your god you play for an audience of one and whether your name is ever in the nightly news does not matter to you what matters to you is that today you live by faith and you Please, the God you serve. Amen? Amen? Folks, I am confident of this. If we do not step out in faith, you and I, God will most certainly raise up another generation in our place. He will. He's done it before and he will do it again. People who will step out with faith and assurance. I don't want the next generation to be that generation. I want to be that generation so that they look at us and go, wow, my mom, my dad, my leader, my youth leader, they were men and women that walked by faith. Folks, whatever we do, let's not let this opportunity pass on to the next generation. Let's be a generation of people who live with assurance and conviction. Amen? (laughs)
6: Thank you.